Jay Harmon. And in case you don't know who this Darnielle person is, she is the CEO of Incredible One Enterprises LLC, a multi-million dollar coaching consulting brand best known for transforming the lives of her business coaching clients. She equips them with leverage and she equips her clients with leverage to scale their businesses to grow them financially and spiritually. From mindset to messaging, marketing, sales, systems, and scale, Darnielle can take you from six figures to seven figures in record time, all while deepening your connection to God and strengthening your faith. Welcome to the show, Darnielle. Tell us what is the biggest and best business deal you're most proud of? So I'm excited to be here, first and foremost. And the biggest deal that I have closed to date was a half a million dollar deal to a fortune 100 company to help them to work on some leadership development and executive coaching with their core executives there were 45 executives that my team and i were working with over the course of six months so a half a million in six months wow <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely worth bragging about when when did that happen if we don't mind asking yeah, that was in 2019. Oh my gosh. So closing a half a million dollars off one business deal. Uh, so that, that, that's amazing. And and I love to use the analogy that like, here you are at the top of the mountain. You're like, we did this. You're able to close this huge deal. But of course, you probably didn't come out of the womb learning how to do that. No. <laughs> so um, I wish I did, but I didn't. <laughs> yes. Don't we all? Don't we all? Uh, so tell us what, what were some of the, the milestones and like some of the highlights kind of leading up to that moment of like your, your superhero journey, if you uh, you can say uh, however many or little as you want. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that I would drill it down into three different pillars or phases that were important. Number one is consistency. So we know, right, we know Marketing 101 says that people buy when they know you like you trust you. Well, the way that you create no like and trust is through consistency. So if you say you're going to do something, if you say you are the expert to do something, then be that and be that consistently everywhere you possibly can in, in the marketplace. And so I was consistent. The relationship that I had that led to the half a million dollar deal started with them bringing me in to do a one day workshop in the organization. And that one day workshop was for 10K. They asked me, or I asked them to make sure that the key decision makers were gonna be there for the first and the final sessions of the day. Hmm. I wanted them there to watch me kick it off and I wanted them there to watch me close it out. And so they did that. As a result of that, as we were ending, one of the senior executive vice presidents came up to me and said, do you have a card? I'd like to have a follow-up conversation with you. I knew that that would happen if they were in the room for the opening and or the closing. I knew that that would happen. Had that follow-up conversation just two days later. And then during that conversation, I asked a few really clear or questions. And as a result of that, it turned into the opportunity to write a proposal. They wanted me to write a proposal. I don't like writing proposals. So I turned <laughs> yeah. that into an opportunity to present them with an engagement letter. And that engagement letter led to me presenting and making a pitch to their team and a half a million dollars later. So consistency was first. So in order for the person who connected me to bring me in to speak the first time, they saw me consistently online. The message that I was communicating consistently online was the same. One of the things that I think entrepreneurs struggle with because they are bright, shiny object syndrome affected is yeah. wanting to change their message or change their focus as fast as the wind blows. But you really do have to learn how to become a broken record for what you want to be known for. And the problem that you can solve that your potential client has been unsuccessful at solving on their own. And so every day, like clockwork, every week, like clockwork, every month, like clockwork, every quarter, like clockwork. I was saying the same things online. So when they finally mm -hmm. became aware that they had the problem that I could solve for them, I was the person that they reached out to. So number one would be consistency. Number two would be follow up and follow through. Mm -hmm. So that first conversation that we had that led to the possibility of a workshop for one day, it was a conversation that didn't lead into the check being cut as a result of that conversation. So that meant I needed to follow up. And I believe, I follow up, I believe in the two plus two plus two. 
first follow-up is within two days because a lead is only really hot in the 48 hours yeah. after the interaction, right? The second two is in um, two weeks. So I followed up again in two weeks. And then- oh, interesting. You go right from two days all the way to two weeks? Yeah. So from two, oh, the first reach out is, is two days. And then the next one okay. after that two day reach out, then two two weeks later, and then every two weeks after that. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what I also know is that sales statistics tell us that the average sale is closed on the fifth through the 12th contact, but the average salesperson stops after the second. Mm, that so is this particular 10K deal that became a half a million dollar deal that follow-up, it was the third two-week follow-up. So it was approximately eight weeks later after that first, hey, we want to bring you in to do a workshop that we actually nailed down the workshop. I got the check cut. I showed up, I think, three or four weeks later. And then after that, we moved into the half a million dollar deal. <laughs> that is so fascinating going from them not responding for eight weeks to saying, by the way, I could write you a check for 10 grand. And obviously a leap from 10 grand to 500 grand is <laughs> quite well, the leap. happening in the company, yeah. right? And so this yeah. is why follow-up is so important. It's yeah. urgent for you. It's not necessarily urgent for them. So that mm -hmm. initial, you know, whatever the thing is, the initial thought happened, oh, I'm going to reach out to this woman I see online all the time. I think she'd be great for this. Then immediately after that, they had a shakeup in the company where one of their important heads stepped down. Yeah. Right. So now they're trying to figure that all out. And while they're trying to figure all that out, I'm still making phone calls. Hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense, especially, yeah, working with, with corporate companies, like it's just a lot of red tape and just like steps to go through versus like, yeah, small businesses and entrepreneurs. They're like, oh, yeah, I can make a decision tomorrow because I have to because <laughs> we just got to get things going. Right. Um, and I'd love for you to touch on the proposal and engagement letter really quick, because I know, yeah, when you're working with companies, that's usually how they blow people off is like, oh, yeah, send us a proposal. We'll get back to you. So tell us more about that, that strategy. Yeah, there, so saying, one yeah. When I'm at, well, let me first define them. So a proposal is exactly what it sounds like. It's a proposed idea to help them to solve a problem. It's not the concrete idea that they are going to pursue, but it's an option for them. Whereas an engagement letter is we've de designed and defined a scope of work and we've decided we're going to do these things together to solve the problem. So when a person says to me, send us a proposal, I say, oh, well, we're not at that point yet. I need more information before I can send you a proposal. And the reason I do that is because I know that proposals, they sit desk, sit on desk and they line trash cans. Yep. Mm -hmm. Most companies get a ridiculous amount of unsolicited proposals every single day. Mm -hmm. And so even if yours is good, even if you have the golden ticket or you could lay the golden goose, you're in that pile with all the other ones, which means you're likely not going to get looked at. So by even making a statement like that, you create a pattern interrupt, interrupt in the conversation, right? So I'm talking to big wig executive at whatever company. They just asked me to send them a proposal. And my response is, oh, well, we're not at that point yet. I need more information before I can send you a proposal. Wait, what? Mm. Who do you think you are? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That you're not going to just send me a proposal like I asked you to. Don't you know I'm the big brand that could change your life in an instant? Well, here's the thing. You know, we're all people. And it, uh, and unless you learn how to recognize that you're as great as anyone else, you will always yield to and succumb to somebody else's impression of who you are. And so, no, I'm if you, if you have a problem that you're having a conversation with me that I could potentially solve, that means I'm the solution bearer. Mm -hmm. And because I'm the solution bearer, I hold a position that you cannot take away from me and you cannot rush. And so, no, I'm sorry, that's not the way we work. So I will ask more questions, which will lead to us devising a plan together. And in that plan that we devise together, we can even come up with time frame, what the needs payoff is going to be and all of the elements that are associated, which would be my proposal in a proposal 
is now concrete that these are the things that are going to make a difference. And we can agree upon at the end of this when it's all said and done and they're feeling warm and fuzzy because here they are finally in possession of the solution that they've been craving. And I say to them, if I was able to get you an engagement letter by the end of business today, would you be able to get back to me tomorrow with either a signed engagement letter or questions so that we can get started? I like to call that advancing the sale. Mm. So that shifts the dynamic and it allows them to see you as the expert that they see that you are, because that's why you're having a conversation with them in the first place. Uh, and so, sorry, go back, go back to the engagement letter. So when they say, send us proposal, you're like, actually, we're not ready for that. We need to do an engagement letter. Like, do you book another call? I don't do you send say, your own form? No, no. So I don't say we need to do an engagement letter. When they say, well, just send us a proposal. I'm like, oh, well, we're not at that stage yet. If you mm -hmm. want me to put together a proposal, I have a few more questions. Mm -hmm. And then I just mm -hmm. move into my questions. Gotcha. And what I'm okay. getting at is I'm moving from becoming an option to the obvious choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm willing to ask them additional questions in order to get to that being the realization that they come to that, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, this girl is the truth. She's the answer. <laughs> She's exactly what we've been looking for. So let's slow this train down and engage in a conversation that's going to lead us down the path of what it is that we want. No, that makes sense. I love that. Um, and I want to transition a little bit into uh, talking about mindsets and uh, being able to grow and scale your companies and obviously get into the point of charging 10K, charging half a million dollars. Um, tell us more about the how you cultivate and create your mindset to go after building, go after talking with these companies, building your own company. Tell, tell us more about all that. Yeah, so here's the thing for me. I believe that the way you see money is about the way you see yourself. I believe that many of us in the United States, because uh, that's my only frame of reference because I've only ever lived in the United States, we were raised, whether we came from money or not, to believe that money is this elusive thing that we don't really understand, that we fall victim or subject to. And because of that, depending upon where we come from, me, I was born and raised in the projects of Wilmington, Delaware, to drug addicted, turn crack addicted parents. So for me, money was a nice to have. And you were doing something really special if you had money, because the fact of the matter is that there was just never enough. Those were the limiting beliefs and the messages that were constantly passed down to me. That's where I come from. Yet, for as long as I can remember, I've always believed that I would be rich one day. Like, I just knew that I would have millions of dollars. Like, I believed in myself, my gifts, and my talents in such a way that somehow, some way, they were going to create millions of dollars for me. And as a result of that, I started to shift the way I saw myself, which ultimately helped me to shift the way I saw money. Now, I'm fast forwarding. This is well into my you know, 20s, almost 30, when these types of things started to happen, where I started to see myself and money differently because I was a, a product of my environment. I, I, I believed all the hype that my parents taught me about money, right? It was you know, you had to rob Peter to pay Paul. It's, you have to work hard for it. When you get it, you have to do everything in your power to hang on to it because it goes mm -hmm. too fast. All of those things is the way that I lived around money. Even when I got to corporate America and was making six figures a year in my job, it didn't feel like a lot of money because I was burning right through it based on yeah. what I knew to be true about money, right? You know, my mom used to say, that money is already spent. And that's what I used to tell myself. And so I would literally get paid and my bank account would be empty. It would already be spent on whatever the things were. And so I had to really, I had to do surgery, if you will. Like I had to truly shift and change the way that I saw money. And that really began to happen for me. And in my mid thirties, I filed bankruptcy, chapter seven bankruptcy, um, and Sorry, for us muggles, what, what's the between any of the chapters of bankruptcy? Well, chapter seven, and, and I might not get this right, so don't quote me like I'm telling you the law. Go Google it. But <laughs> yeah. a chapter seven bankruptcy is an individual bankruptcy where everything can be discharged, whereas a chapter 13 bankruptcy is where it's a reorganization of debt. 
So mm. some of the debts you have to pay off, but a chapter seven, you don't have to pay anything back. Things are really bad. I was really bad with money. I didn't understand it. I squandered it, all the things. And I ended up having to file bankruptcy. I came to the end of a very difficult period of my life and the money had run out and there was really nothing else that I could do. Well, the best thing that ever happened to me is that as a part of the bankruptcy proceeding and my bankruptcy debt being discharged, I was um, mandated to take a financial literacy course. And when I learned what money was and learned how to master it, everything began to change. This was a state financial literacy course? Yeah, it was yeah, state run. State of Delaware mandated that I go to a financial literacy course. And so I'm so grateful because that changed everything for me. Because, you know, I filed bankruptcy at 35. By the time I was 38, I had a million dollar company. And by the time I was 40, I was a multiple millionaire. Wow. <laughs> so to answer, this is the very long answer to your very short question about the mindset shift that created an opportunity for me to get people to invest in themselves at higher levels is this. When people hire you, they are paying for the value you bring to the table to solve their problem. They're paying for every degree you have, every certification, every course, every book you read, every mistake you made. They're not paying for your time. Those yeah. of us who struggle with pricing, we are still operating like employees. Mm -hmm. Employees get paid by the hour and they think by the hour. Entrepreneurs get paid by the solution or the result. And so they base their prices on the value of the result. And what I mean when I say that is, and what I encourage the clients that we serve to do is to think about the solution you're going to provide and the intrinsic value to your client just over the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. Because if you teach them how to fish and they can then go fish every single week to eat, that is massive value versus you making them a piece of fish. Yeah. And so we mm -hmm. price according to the value instead of according to the time. Because it doesn't matter the time, right? When, when I'm out keynoting on stages, one of the, the stories that I always tell is a story about a manufacturing company who who's machinery produced the equivalent of $5 million a day in product to be sold. Well, one day the machine went down just a, a third of the way through, through the day. They called in the in-house tech. He couldn't fix it. They called in the person at the next site. They couldn't fix it. Eventually they call an expert. The expert walks in excited. Take me to the machine. The manager walks the expert back to the machine and says, it's up to you whether you stay or you go. Manager assumes that he's going to be back with the machine forever. So he says, you're going to be back here for a while. So just come and find me when you're ready. Expert says, okay, great. Within five minutes, the manager hears the machine running. He is chucking it back to where the expert is because he cannot believe that he's here in the machine where two other techs have failed. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, what did you do? It's like, I'm an expert. Of course I knew what to do. <laughs> expert hands him an invoice for a million dollars. Manager says, whoa, you are only with the machine for five minutes. How could this possibly cost a million dollars? Expert says, you didn't pay me to take my time. You pay me to resolve the problem as quickly as possible because you're losing $5 million a day by me not fixing this machine. Mm -hmm. Manager says, fair enough. <laughs> well, could you yeah. at least itemize your invoice? Sure. $999,950 for knowing how to fix the machine and $50 for the hammer. Like literally, yeah. when you're the experts, you charge based on the value. Because if that machine is back up and running and producing the equivalent of $5 million a day, at the end of the year, that company is doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and sales. So what we do wrong as entrepreneurs is we base it on our limited view and scope of what we're going to be doing with that client instead of thinking about it. I have a client that I worked with back in 2009, 2010. Back then, I didn't understand this principle, so I was undercharging. But she paid me $297 for 90 minutes of my time, and she went off and made $11,000. Because she made $11,000 in, in 90 minutes after paying me $300, she ended up doing a VIP day with me. My VIP day at that time 
<laughs> not very much. Like, I don't know, yeah. maybe dollars $3,000. Did a VIP day with me. And from that, she produced $120,000. So when it was all said and done, I had $28.97. She had $131,000. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't even be happy for my client. Because mm-hmm. I didn't pay her based on the value. I paid her based on my time. The thought of yeah. someone paying me $300 for 90 minutes of my time. Whoa. That's huge back then, but it's not really when you think about the fact that I solved the problem that she's still leveraging to make money in her business some 15 years later. Yeah, that is, oh my gosh, that's such an inspiring story. And like it, it, it gives hope too, because, you know, everyone always makes fun of state run programs and, and stuff like that. And the fact that you're like, well, I took a state run literacy or a financial literacy program, helped me go from zero to uh, <laughs> multi seven yeah. figures. Uh, that's definitely very cool. Um, and uh, in this, I just want to talk about this for just a tiny bit, but I feel like it's it's very relevant to today that so many people in America are, are in debt and around the world of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, why doesn't everyone just declare bankruptcy and start from scratch to be able to properly reboot things? I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to file bankruptcy for the record. Like it was, it was a last, it was, it, it had to be done. There was nothing else I could do. I, for as long as I could, I didn't do it because of the stigma associated with it. It follows you for like 10 years. Like it's just, all the things, right? Um, I I don't know why anybody else does or doesn't do it. I don't know why people necessarily should. I think my thoughts on it is that having done it when it is the only option, I think it's the option, right? I immediately after doing it felt this massive release, but I would never do it again. Not only because I learned about finances and, and became financially literate, but even now to this day, I don't put anything on a credit card that I can't pay when the bill comes. Yeah. I don't, I don't, my debt does not roll over. Like it's because for me, I want to be fiscally responsible. I believe that there is an expectation when you know better, you should do better. And because mm-hmm. I know better, I should do better. And so for me, it was the only option. Uh, you know, I, I can't speak to what, what anybody's situation is and why they should or shouldn't do it. I know for me, I did it because it was the only thing left to do. And it was the only way to get beyond something that I would have never been able to resolve. And it's a defining moment in my story. Had I not done that, I wouldn't be a millionaire today. I wouldn't have learned about money. I wouldn't be able to teach other people about money. I wouldn't be able to help entrepreneurs leverage what I know about money and I'm able to convey to them in a way that helps them to build businesses that serve them financially and spiritually. And so uh, uh, the way I say it, it's a big part of my story. It's a big part of my destiny. What I will say though, is if there's anyone out there who has to do it, it's the only answer. Um, It's a tool as anything else. It is not an indication of who you are and it is not synonymous with failure. So I'm going to give you that because you're likely going to go through that on your own because it it will signify or has the potential to signify to you that you've done something wrong. And sure, maybe you've made some mistakes, but I think growing is recognizing those mistakes and rebounding from them. Now, if you use bankruptcy as a tool and every seven years you're filing bankruptcy, you've got bigger <laughs> problems. And I think eventually yeah. they'll cut you off. Like, I don't know if that's a, a thing or not, but um, that's totally different than my scenario. And so I'm not an, a walking advocate for bankruptcy. I'm not going to suggest anyone do it because there are repercussions. Mm-hmm. There are, there are, I mean, for a while I couldn't even get a credit card. I had to pay cash for everything because no one was willing to take a financial risk on me and who could blame them? So there are repercussions, right? And so if it is the choice, make sure that you get good advice and you develop a plan of what you're going to do in the seven to 10 years before it is no longer following you around everything that it is that you do so that you can actually continue to live some semblance of the life that you deserve to experience. Mm, That that makes sense. This goes back to that bankruptcy is, is a tool and so you can use it or not use it, but obviously make sure you know everything at stake <laughs> before you yeah. before you jump into it. But I love how you're you're a success story from it and showing what 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 what's possible. 
Um, and uh, I guess, yeah, the first question is going back to mindset too. Um, I know you, you love talking about imposter syndrome. If you know, if you research your, your content, and your material. Um, so tell us more about, uh, obviously, I know imposter syndrome holds a lot of people back. How, how do you help people with that? Yeah. So again, <laughs> you know, I'll say all of this stems from the way that we see ourselves. So, you know, it's no secret. You said it in my bio. I am a woman of faith. You know, I believe in having a relationship with God. For me, it's God. Um, and I believe that if you want to know the purpose of a thing, you consult the maker of that thing. And so in order to validate my purpose, I consult my maker. And I believe that God didn't have time to make a nobody. Like, I think every single one of us, we came here as abundance and potential and greatness. That's how we, that's how we were either pushed out or pulled out of the womb. That's how we came here. It's our birthright. Mm -hmm. And I believe that operating in any other way beyond the realization that when God created me, he was showing the world what incredible looked like is a disservice to God and the world. Mm. So I have never personally struggled with imposter syndrome. Um, there are people who believe that imposter syndrome isn't real. I, I don't know if I have an opinion. I work with a lot of people who I think it's less imposter syndrome and it's more worthiness and deserve level. I think it's people who don't understand the source of their worth and they are validating their worth by someone else's interpretation instead of owning their worth by the only interpretation that matters. Mm. And there's a, you know, there's a series of circumstances that can determine the place in which a person comes to lack the self-esteem and self-confidence that would allow them to avoid something like imposter syndrome. The way we're raised, where we're raised, what we are taught, what's spoken over us. Like I know I work with a, a lot of women who look like me, who come from families where, and I don't know if you heard this as a child, Andrew, where we, I remember my dad saying all the time, you should be seen and not heard. Children should be seen and not heard. Right. Okay. I heard that before. Okay. Yeah. Well, I heard it all the time. I heard it enough for you. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And um, and you know, basically, I can I hear my dad all the time. He's like, Danielle Antoinette. Antoinette's my middle name. And he said, I see you. Why do I hear you? And so I talk about this in my book, Move to Millions. And a lot of the clients that I serve come from a similar experience. And so their imposter syndrome today is really an inability to speak up and be heard for what they need to say, right? They don't, they don't feel seen and heard because they were squelched down and dismissed and for years and years and years, right? And eventually you start to believe the things that people say about you if they say them enough, especially if you don't have um, something counter. If there's no one else telling you your greatness and all you hear is that you're a nuisance or a worry or a bother, then the nuisance, the worry, and the bother is going to speak way louder than the greatness. And mm, you're going mm -hmm. to operate as if that's who you are. And so I think that that's where it comes from. As a woman, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm Black, but I'm also a woman. And so then there's the, the stigma around being a woman, a second-class citizen in the world, right? You know, there was a point in time in not so distant history where women couldn't even vote, <laughs> they didn't have a say, they didn't matter, they could only birth babies. Like that was that was their purpose. And so contending with that too could be a source of imposter syndrome. I know that there were some studies that were done in the 80s and the 90s um, that have spoken to imposter syndrome, where it comes from and the things that you need to do to alleviate it. As I'm working with clients, for me, it's really about helping them to unearth the truth. Hmm. And to shift the way that they see themselves, because if I can get themselves to see themselves the way that God sees them, then there is no imposter. There is no syndrome. And so a lot of the work that we do in that particular grain where that's where we're facing with the client is specifically around holding space for them to feel seen and heard so that they can invoice their opinions in a safe place and really sit in the significance of how it feels to be heard. 
and to recognize that they do have something of value to say. And when they speak up, other people get value from what it is that they've said. People have to be shown that because that may or may not be what they experience on a regular basis, just based on their gender, what they look like, et cetera. And we could probably say this about, you know, other um, orientations of people as well. But, you know, my experience being a woman and being a black woman on top of that, like I've been in places where people where I've been underestimated. And because I'm confident, because I did the work to become competent, it doesn't impact me the same as the person who their confidence wanes because they're constantly hearing a person say that. And they don't believe that they have the power to defend themselves or to speak up for themselves because it is a thing. It happens. No, that, that, that makes sense. And that, that's so well, well said. And, uh, and I love how you talked about, you know, consulting with God and, and uh, believing that abundance is a birthright. And why, why would we be put on this earth just to, to suffer and doubt ourselves all the time? Like, yeah, people living in poverty. But that is not our birthright. Like no one's born to be impoverished. I mean, and that's mm -hmm. probably a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. But I do believe that um, when we were created and it's based on the Bible, right? Jeremiah one and five says, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I approved you. Mm. How could you have been approved by God and not be abundance? Yeah. You know, it's no, a I, whole thing. I, I love that. And <laughs> Um, and, and, and so I want to, um, so I know, yeah, for, in case there's any listeners who are like anti-God, anti-religion, anti-spirituality. Um, so I'm curious more about so going back to your journey of, um, I know, I know there's a gap between bankrupt to multi-millions. So tell, tell us more about like, did you hire your own coaches and find better programs and courses? Like, I'm curious more about. I doubt the state taught you how to make millions of dollars. So <laughs> tell no, us more about that no, transition. The state definitely <laughs> did. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'll, I'll say this. I think that what I share and, and my own experience isn't, it's not religious, right? So for the person who's anti-God and that's your right to be anti-God. I like to look at the principles, right? Because even in the Bible, in first John, um, it says any man who, so any man who believes these things will experience the benefits. So, you know, when you understand the principles, God is principled, right? The, the universe is principled. When you understand the principles and you work the principles, you can experience the result of having worked the principles. So having said that, so my journey from bankruptcy at 35 to $38 million CEO, 40 multiple millionaire, was filled with coaching and mentorship for sure. Um, and for several reasons. First, because it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar, right? If you want to go somewhere you've never been, like you would not charter a plane to Paris and drive yourself there with a map. <laughs> like you wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. because I wouldn't do that, I also wouldn't endeavor to go somewhere I've never been. I had never been a successful entrepreneur and I wanted to be one. So I had to go find some successful entrepreneurs that I could learn from. I had to be willing to humble myself. I know what it is that I know. And I think humility is confidence, right? So I had to be willing to, in confidence, allow someone else to step into the seat of leader coach or teacher to help me to learn the things that I was not privy to so that I could exercise what they were teaching me to get myself to a different place. And so, yes, live events, books, when I couldn't afford it, because at bankruptcy, I couldn't afford it. I, you know, I wasn't dripping in, in cash, but I could afford books. Yeah. And so I started reading books, right? Early books that really made the difference in who I am and who I have become in books that I refer and recommend to other people now. I started there. And then, you know, I, I scraped together enough change and I'd go to an event and I'd meet that particular coach or mentor and see the other people that were there, especially events that I could drive to that I would, wouldn't require me the additional expense of a hotel or a plane ticket. And then eventually I started to, you know, go out even further and get on planes and book hotels to go to a vet. And then I started to get to a level of comfort where I found um, 
people who could actually be my mentor and I enrolled in coaching programs. Like I believe that personal development is going to precede professional development, not just in the dictionary, but everywhere. So if you want to be a success professionally, you have got to do the work personally. And so that could mean and could look like coaching and mentorship. It could also look like therapy, right? It could also look like recognizing there are some things in your past that threaten your future unless you're willing to work and resolve them. It could look like doing your forgiveness work, right? Because a direct tie to your money is unforgiveness. Yeah. So there, there are so many things that you can do on this pathway to get to where it is that you want to be. And for me, it was all of that. It was coaching and mentorship and books and, and forgiveness work and recognizing, building myself up, imagining and dreaming a new dream. And as I dreamt that dream, believing that I could actually accomplish it, mm. asking the question, pushing the limits. What if, what if we did this? What if we did that? And trying it, a lot of hypothesizing. I don't know if that's a word, but a lot of a lot of <laughs> trying to figure it out as we go, right? A lot yeah. of that until we landed on something that actually produced the result that we wanted, and then we could hunker down and stake a claim in that. No, and that, that's that's very inspirational, and just just a reminder too that things don't happen overnight, but they can still happen quickly, and you can still have urgency to them. Um, I'm just like, yeah, going from one event to two events to event outside of the city, outside of the state, outside of the country, even. Um, and and I'm curious too, what were some of those amazing life-changing books that you read that you, uh, encourage others to read too? Yeah. I mean, back in the day, probably the one that changed my life the most specifically around money was a happy pocket full of money by David Cameron Jacondi. Um, highly recommend that book books like the big leap for just mindset related and, and shifting the way that I saw myself. And then practical knowledge stuff over the years. I mean, it's been everything from books on marketing, like no particular person's name or title to some of the Seth Godin books, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Grant Cardone books in the, the early years, his 10X book, like just thinking bigger, like all of those types of things, pushing the limits to what I knew to be true and how I could get to a different reality and um, and then implementing what was inside of the book, right? That's part of the reason when I wrote my book, Move to Millions, I wrote it in such a way that I would lay out what it takes for the person who may never come to one of my live events or inquire about working with me and my team in one of our programs. They would be able to get a good sense of what it's going to take for them to make the move to millions. And so I wrote my book that way after some of the books that I read that if they had to put it inside the book, I might still be in the place that I was because I just wasn't able, like making a $20 decision at that point in time in my life was way easier than trying to make a $20,000 decision, right? Or even a $2,000 decision at that time. No, that makes sense. And thank you for the recommendations. Um, so I'd love to transition a little bit into pe- for the people who are listening, you know, at this low six figures mark, and they'd like to scale to the seven figure mark. And obviously, is one of your top expertises. Um, so tell us what do most people get wrong when it comes to scaling and going from six to seven figures? I love that. Um, There's probably three things that people get wrong. Number one, they think having a whole bunch of different offers and a lot of different price points is going to get them to the million dollar mark. There's a saying, you can't chase two rabbits and expect to catch either one. Mm -hmm. There's also this seven income streams myth that exists in the marketplace. You can't chase two rabbits and expect to catch either one. How in the world are you chasing seven and expecting (laughs) to catch them? Mm -hmm. So the fastest path to the million dollar mark is one offer. Mm. You hunker down on that one. So whether we're talking finding a thousand people that buy your $1,000 thing or 500 people that buy your $2,000 thing, or 50 people who buy your $20,000 thing, it's hunkering down on that one offer. That's the fastest way to make the move to millions, just from the financial standpoint. Second thing that I see people do wrong is they try to make the move and they try to quote unquote scale before they have a foundation that will support it. First of all, scaling is often misunderstood and misrepresented. It, scaling is about multiplication and replication. It's not about speed. 
And people think if I just get there really, really fast, I will have done it. No, the whole point of being able to scale is that you have proven a process that if you pour gasoline on it, it's going to achieve the result you want without breaking. Mm-hmm. Well, if you try to scale without a strong foundation, guess what? You're breaking. You're breaking yeah. constantly. And every break delays how long it takes for you to get to the million dollar mark. So you won't actually get there or it'll be substantially delayed unless you build a firm foundation. That's what my book is all about. Like, this is what you need to be thinking about. You need to make sure that you have your foundation set before you start to sell. You you scale. You set the foundation first. This is not one of those build the plane while you're flying it types of things. Not if you don't, not if you want to be able to sustain it. If you just want to be a one hit wonder and do it one time, then sure, have at it. But if you want to sustain it and year over year over year, we just celebrated our fifth consecutive multi-million dollar year. If if you want to sustain it, then build the foundation first. So that's the second thing. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is... This one really burns my biscuits. And it's really like eating off of too many plates, trying too many strategies, right? So if you only need one offer to make the move to millions, you really only need one clear strategy to make the move to millions. And there are a lot of people who are running themselves ragged out there doing all the things without a clear understanding of how they all funnel together. And it's creating overwhelm, it's creating burnout, it's creating fatigue, and it is delaying their move to millions. So those would be the three. Um, one, Make sure you only have one offer, set your firm foundation, and focus on one strategy. No, I love it. Yeah, it's like it's like you've done this before or something. Yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> I, I've done it a few times. <laughs> <laughs> a, a few times. Um, it, it, it just out of curiosity too, like when, when you're working with clients, like is there are there any clients who got lucky with their offer? Like, are there any clients who are at the low six figures mark? We've had to like recalibrate their offer, or pivot completely, essentially. And I'm curious about that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So here's the thing: you can oops your way to six figures. <laughs> Six yeah. figures is not hard. It's mm-hmm. not hard. I know you're like, what? I haven't hit it yet. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's more mental than it is material as to why you haven't hit six figures. It's so easy to hit six figures. Yeah. And because you can oops your way to six figures, people think that they can do the same exact things they did to get to six, to get to seven, but you can't. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to offerings, that's absolutely one of them. I, I just told you, you only need one offer. Most of the people Mm -hmm. who come to us, they have like five or six. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place for all the different offers. But what I what I recommend is that you focus on one signature offer, whatever, whatever price point works for you. I mean, I have a a threshold that I recommend a signature offer be in to make it easy for you to get to the million dollar mark. But you focus on one offer. The other offers are only presented as a backup option to the main offer, but you don't walk out in the street with the jacket, with the knives (laughs) and forks on one hand on side and the spoons on the other and say, which one do you want? You really walk out there with the only an obvious choice that's going to solve the problem most completely for your client. That's what you present to them. And only when that doesn't work for them because either they can't afford it, the investment is too steep or they haven't done the prerequisites. Do you present them with something else as opposed to giving them a, a proverbial buffet of options from which to choose? Most people who grew up in internet marketing and online business grew up in this tripwire economy that starts at $7, then progresses to $97, then to $497, then to $997. Like, listen, just give me the solution. The person yeah. is still spent $10,000 if they go through all the steps. But the average person would much rather go from you can solve my problem to giving you the $10,000 to get the solution without all of these detours along the way. Mm -hmm. And so it really does offer an amazing opportunity to evaluate your offer suite and to set it up in a way that really is going to support you using and leveraging that one offer to get to the million dollar mark. Mm, No, I I love that. Uh, And I'm curious in in your own journey, like, um, I'm sure it took lots of tweaks and adjustments and mentors and coaching for you to nail down your um, main offer and your, your best performing offers. Um, how did you come up with that successful formula for yourself? You know, what's, you know what's interesting, Andrew, as I was sitting there listening to your question, I'm like, you know what? I don't think any of my coaches ever helped me with my offers. <laughs> so I just came up with them on my own and, and a lot of test and trial. 
right? We launched mm-hmm. a lot of things over the years that didn't really land. Um, I've, I've only had happen once an offer that we created that no one bought. That's only happened once. What and that was, was that a couple of years ago. That was the <laughs> very first time that had ever happened. But we've had a, a lot of different things. And part of it, I think, ha- has been me trying to get really, really clear and honestly being honest with myself about who I really wanted to serve. Mm-hmm. And I would try to serve more people than I should actually serve, right? Because when you know how to do something and, and you meet people and they you know, give you their story and you just want to see them win and you take them on as a client, but they're not ready for you, you're actually doing them a disservice. I did a lot of people a disservice by accepting them into my program when they weren't really ready for what it is mm. that it, that we do and what we bring to the table for people. And so a lot of refinement and tweaks and then customer surveys. And, you know, even when, when we have a program, if a person doesn't renew to work with us, we still perform a wrap up session. Like we, we want to yeah. know, like, what did you like? What did you not like? Why are you not renewing? Like we want to get an, a handle on all of those things so we can continue to make our programs better for the people that, you know, we're called to serve. So, but yeah, but I cannot tell you that anybody ever helped me with my offers. I feel like they always came through my initial thought and interaction, and then we would put it out there and tweak as we go. And to get to the point where we have the clear offers that we bring to the table today. No, that's, that's so fascinating because, uh, yeah, because I know it's tricky because we want to, it, it's tricky sometimes finding that balance between what we know the answer to and what we know we need to hire and consult others on getting the answer to. Um, and so it's interesting that like, I know all these coaches and resources like helped you in other areas, but like you had to go through your own path to find your own offer. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Coaches have helped me in other ways. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just been continuing to expand the capacity of how I think and helping me to think bigger. Right. And holding that space for me because they could see what was possible for me. I said earlier, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. And sometimes the coach or mentor that you work with is really just reading your label. It's it's been there all along. It's like the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy. She was there all along. Yeah. She just needed them on the journey with her to realize that she had everything that she needed to get back home. And so sometimes that that is what it is. I've made investments just for the support to hold the space for me to come into my own, for me to be able to embody who it was I most wanted to be in the next season. No, I, I love that. I love that. Um, and, and, uh, and also I'm curious. We just lost sound. I can't hear you all of a sudden. Can't hear you. about now it's working now yeah i can hear you now i probably, probably sound a little different but um so yeah when it comes to scaling uh and just to double check like most companies say hey before you hire anyone you always need to hire more salespeople. then you hire an hr person um what, what is the order of scaling with to help grow the company yeah so the first person you need to hire is actually administrative support like i think that's the first person you hire is administrative mm-hmm. support Um, And and the reason why I think that that's the first person you hire is because you need someone to help you to get everything documented so that as you bring on salespeople and marketing team and other service providers, those things are documented so that they know what to do day in and day out. And you don't have Mm. to be fully present to support them. So for me, like like, I'm going to go all the way back. So let's say you're just starting a company today and you're not a funded startup, right? But you're just starting today and you decide it's January. I'm starting my own business, right? What do you do? Well, in the first year, my recommendation is that you do everything in your company, everything except for anything legal and every, anything financial, unless your background is finances. You should not be doing your yeah. own bookkeeping. You, you should not be trying to create your own contracts, right? But yeah. everything else, you do every, you perform every function. When I first became a full-time entrepreneur, it was just me and I did everything. Mm-hmm. I created an email account in my mother Regina's name. She was my <laughs> assistant. I was Regina, <laughs> but to the world, Regina was responding to all the emails. So I gave the appearance of a company when I was doing everything. And simultaneously, I was writing everything down. I was documenting. 
Now, mm -hmm. Regina was only my assistant for my first 90 days to six months. Then I brought on a part-time assistant. Now, I've never started with virtual assistants. I always had somebody physically with me because I need somebody in my space in order to keep me focused to do what it is that I do. I know that about myself. Yeah. So I had a part-time assistant. And with my part-time assistant, we got to the million dollar mark. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> then after the assistant, the next hire you make is you need a person who's going to serve the clients. You're mm -hmm. doing all of the marketing and the sales. Your assistant is helping you, but you're putting the stuff out there and you're having the conversations because you have to perfect your sales process before you go bring on salespeople. Biggest mistake I think you can make is hire someone else to sell for you and allow them to use their process in your business. Because mm -hmm. what if they're really aggressive and use car salesperson-y? That's the energy that a new person that's considering hiring you to solve their problem is experiencing as the front line of being in communication with your business. But you're going to have to get, I used to tell clients, your first goal is to get 50 no's. Do you know how many yeses you get if you get 50 no's? I've, I've done it several times. The first time, in order for me to get to 50 no's, I ended up getting 20 yeses. Whoa. <laughs> Interesting. Everybody's yeah. not going to say no. You know why? Because every time you pitch, you get better. Yeah. No, you real. take what yeah. didn't work well the last time and you add that in. Mm -hmm. And so, and the problem you solve is going to be right for some of the people that you're talking to. Yeah. So you have to get good enough at sales to know how you want sales to be conducted in your business before you bring on salespeople. But what you need almost right away is someone else who's going to help you to perform the service. Because yeah. every day, set every second, every minute, every hour you spend working in your business, you're not working on your business. Mm -hmm. And when you're not working on your business, you're not elevating the way you need to see your business to bring in more. Yeah. You cannot stay in the weeds. You're going to start there, but you can't stay there. The only way you can get out of the weeds is to have someone supporting you administratively and then having someone to perform the service. Now, once you have somebody to help perform the service, then you can start to back off of sales hmm. and bring somebody else on. But you need to make sure that you know how you want it to go so that when you bring this new person on, you can assess whether they're good or not. Yeah. If you just yeah. out the gate, bring somebody in to do sales and they don't close anybody for you, that's a problem, especially if they're a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't give them any direction because you were expecting them to know how to sell, that's a problem too. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and and with, with the admin support, so it's mostly just like helping you to book meetings and, and, like, and just like documenting things. Um, and so. Well, it, I mean, yeah, it, it, it varies. Sense. It's going to be a lot of different things. So we give our clients this list of 100 things that your assistant can do for you. So it wow. is going to be managing your calendar. It's going to be helping you create your standard operating procedures. It's going to be doing client care, participating in some of the marketing functions like you might write the marketing copy, but they might be how it gets disseminated. They might load it into your CRM or go post it on social media or whatever. They may be um, doing follow-up for you. So let's say you sent out proposals, which is against my better judgment, but let's say you send a proposal. They might be doing the follow-up calls for you. They might be confirming your appointments. It's going to depend, right? There's a lot there. You're going to speak. They do your PowerPoint presentation or, you know, or you do your PowerPoint. They go in and make it look pretty and yeah. Spell check it or I mean, it's a myriad of different things across the areas of your business that they may be performing for you. Your first assistant is a catch all. They're doing everything. You may mm. eventually start to segment out your team. But like my, when I had that first full time executive assistant, she did everything I didn't do. Wow. And together we made the move to millions. And then I started building out. Now I've got an operations person. I've got, you know, an executive assistant. I've got coaches. I've got marketing people. I've got salespeople. So now I've got all of these other people, which frees me up to do the part that only I can do so that I can work on the business, not in it. But it didn't start out that way. And, and do you need to hire a, um, for someone to help you fulfill things? Do they need to be a previous client of yours to like get a, the best understanding of how you work and how you I operate? Actually, I actually don't necessarily advocate for they, for them to be your, your client 
unless they do what it is that you're looking to hire for. Like, I think you need, mm. if you want an executive assistant, which you need, if you have your own business, well, I mean, you need the, to go the, hire somebody uh, who is an executive assistant. I mean, the, the second as person as, you like, said you hired. You mean like your yeah. coaches, your your talented people? Yeah, you said you hired. I, I made the mistake of hiring my clients to work with other clients. And here's the problem mm. with that, and at least for me. They were not coaches. They were people who were in my program that had done well, that I thought could mm -hmm. guide existing uh, continuous clients. So we don't make that mistake anymore. We actually mm -hmm. hire people who are trained as coaches to come in and work with our clients. Mm -hmm. We can teach them the content piece, but I cannot teach you the skill, right? You know, I like our talenting people. They have they have had their own businesses that they've gotten to seven or eight figures, and then they decided that they wanted to sell them or not work in them day to day, and they come and coach with us. They have practical experience of entrepreneurship. One of the biggest problems with some of the programs that are out there for entrepreneurs, especially ones created by these organizations that exist, is its theory. The people leading the classes and going through the facilitator's guide has no real world business experience. They've never had their own business. SCORE, which is an SBA funded program. It's the Society Service Corps of Retired Professionals. They are retired from corporate America. They never had no business. <laughs> it's my vernacular. Yes. Yet yeah. they are trying to guide you on how to have a business. That That's ain't fine. right. Yeah. That ain't mm -hmm. hardly right. No, that, that, ma that makes a lot of sense. And it's just like, it, it has always been a curious thing. Like there have been great athletes who've gone on to be incredible coaches. And there's been great athletes who can't coach for anything. And there's yeah. been terrible athletes who have been some of the best coaches of all times and uh, terrible athletes who have been terrible coaches. So it's just like yeah. <laughs> finding that balance. Yeah. I mean, some of it is definitely learned like you can be taught it and some of it is skill that needs to be developed and then mastered right and and there's both in my case with the coaches that i hired earlier had i been a better leader i probably could have developed them to serve our clients well but i actually i didn't develop them and i actually just feel like i did everybody a disservice all the way around thinking that they would be the people who would step in for me, right? Especially when you're a person like me that is very dynamic and is very well-versed in business and being successful in business, you have got to make sure that the caliber of the people that you put in front of your clients in lieu of yourself are similar. Has to be yeah. an apples to apples comparison and not an apple to a grape. <laughs> and I think a lot of times that's what happens. No, I love that. That's uh, rather than apples yeah. to oranges, apple to grape. That's that's fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Well, I have, uh, three questions left. Be respectful of time here. Um, we're curious. What's the next big end game you're working on? Like, what's your pie in the sky? Like legacy goal? What, what, tell, tell us about that a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so my my end game is ultimately to have uh, accumulated wealth of around a hundred million dollars. Um, in order to and and to leave through my family foundation. So mm. to be able to serve and support entrepreneurship and specifically, you know, the children of incarcerated parents, because my mom went to jail when I was younger. So that's something that's really important to me. Part of the way that we will get there, uh, you know, I've mentioned my book a couple of times. We are going to we're in the beginning stages right now of creating our own licensing and certification program. So we're going to certify others who work around entrepreneurship and small business owner to use our methodology to help us to help more people cross the million dollar mark. I believe a seven figure business is the floor, not the ceiling. And yeah. I believe it's really hard to be the change you want to see when you don't have any change. And so we've got to get to the point where we have change in excess in order to actually shift and change the communities where we live, work and play and we're raised, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it's about um, financial legacy and creating deeper impact. I say often, you know, I want to make, move, and leave millions. Mm, I love that. I love that. 
And then uh, final two questions. Uh, first one, how can we best contact you and get a hold of you for all the listeners tuning in today? Yeah, so you can find me online anywhere at Darnielle Jervy Harmon. And you can go to movetomillions.com and how to find me and everything will be right there on that site for you. Perfect. And then final question is, what's the one takeaway you want someone to have from this interview today? Oh, that's a good question. There are so many. We did have for a lot me, of the nuggets. biggest yeah. is the sky is the limit. Dream big. Give God something to bless. Um, and start acting today as if it's your reality. Don't wait until it happens. Be it now. The model of abundance says, who must I be in order to desire what I desire to have so that I can do what I desire to do? So be mm. it, be it now. Because once you are it, the embodiment of it, then everything that it is that you desire to bring into your life experience will come into your life experience. Well said, well said. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, make sure to check out movetomillions.com to learn more about Dr. Harmon. Uh, as you can see, she knows a little bit what she's talking about. And I uh, just love uh, your, your genuine uh, spiritual um, divine uh, energy that you bring to every conversation, your passion, your care, and um, you're, you're, you're showing us all what's possible. So thank, um, you. thank you all for listening in and we'll see you all next episode. Thank you, everyone.